The Art Dealer Diaries are brought to you by Medicine Man Gallery, located for over 26 years in Tucson, Arizona, specializing in antique Native American art, early Western art, including the famed Maynard Dixon, as well as modern art. You can find everything online at medicinemangallery.com. There's over 6,000 objects to select from. Also, the Charles Bloom Murder Mystery Series, written by yours truly, me, Mark Sublett. There's eight books in the series. And they follow the protagonist Charles Bloom through all the intrigue of the art world set in Santa Fe and the Navajo Nation. These can be found on Audible, eBooks, Amazon, and of course, the gallery at medicinemangallery.com. Today was Jay Dussard. He's a really an amazing photographer, and I've known Jay for a long time, actually. And uh, I've had the pleasure of seeing his work in many museum shows. I've always been a fan and was really thrilled that he took the time and effort to come down and do an in-studio discussion on his life and, you know, how the heck do you become one of the best-known Western photographers of the 20th century, not to mention a Guggenheim uh, scholar winner and, you know, what he's doing, what he likes to envision and, and how he does his, his work. And, you know, his big book that came out in 1981, The North American Cowboy, a portrait, was really a seminal work that showed the life of the cowboy and cowgirl. And Jay's, you know, not just a photographer, but he worked as a real cowboy as well earlier on in his life, and he grew up on a farm. So he knows what he's talking about, and that's one of the ways that really he was able to get in to look at these individuals and really enjoy, uh, not only to enjoy, but to, to make a bond where he's able to get the photographs that you need to get to really portray you know, what he wants to see. And now for a very enjoyable podcast with Jay Dussard. I remember hearing a, uh, a wonderful... Uh, lecture you gave for Western art patrons a few years back. You may not even remember doing it, but Western art patrons, you oh, gave a oh, lecture. Oh, yeah, yeah that that's was a good right. One. You were there. I was there. That's right. Yeah. You gave me some uh, valuable advice, if I remember correctly. I was, I know, right? Yeah. But you did. I was asking you about cameras and what's the most important thing. And I believe you said, make sure you have all your equipment working properly. <laughs> I, at one time, I used to subscribe to that <laughs> yeah yeah i thought that was a good you know because yeah. it's easy to screw up i mean you get out yeah. and you you've got the right setting the right light everything and then your battery's not charged or your you have the wrong yeah. lens or you know yeah da 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 so from a professional that makes sense just well you know, i'm an old large format film guy yeah tripod guy <laughs> well, I've got Jay Dussard here, and for those who are watching this on uh, the uh, YouTube, you can see this lovely book that he did. This is the North American Cowboy the Portrait, and we're going to talk about that. That was done in uh, from a Guggenheim Fellowship, actually, that he, he did uh, in 1981, I think, right? Was that yes, what it was? That yeah, was the, that was the, the fellowship, 1981. Yeah. yeah. So tell me, I'd like to know a little bit more about how you grew up, and maybe that'll give me some sensibility of how you became what you became, which is a, you know, at least what you're known for. I, you know, I know you're known for your portraits uh, of cowboys and things in the landscape, but I've also seen some other things that of your, you know, well, landscapes and that railroad car. 
Oh yeah. I think that may you know that's right yeah. up there with my favorite piece. Yeah, that that was a a stroke of luck. It was uh, it's in Rodeo, New Mexico. I know where that is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, where where do we start? Yeah, oh, where'd I you was, grow up? Yeah, just like Charlie Russell. I was born in St. Louis, west of the Mississippi, uh -huh. but most of my growing up was across the river in southern Illinois in uh, farm country. I grew up on a big red tractor between soybean roll, rows. <laughs> so your dad was a farmer? My grandfather and... My uncle, they were the farm people. My dad was a salesman, and he would uh, commute to Centralia, Illinois. Yeah, I know where that is, too. And so your grand, your grandfather and your uncle, were the, they were the, so they were farmers. They were and, the farm folks. And yeah. were their parents before them? Was your great-grandfather, was he well, also in Well, that? my grandfather, uh, he was a lawman. Sheriff of Marion County, Illinois, uh -huh. and his father, Jesse, Jesse Henry May, M-A-Y, yeah. he was uh, he was a lawman as well. Oh, huh. <laughs> but th and but that was your your grandfather. My grandfather was uh, was the sheriff of Marion County, Illinois, in the in the twenties. Oh wow! When the uh, uh, Shelton gang was at large. They kind of ruled ruled southern Illinois, and he yeah. had to go up against them. So it was and, it and, was not an easy time. <laughs> and did he go up against them? Did he? Yeah, there was some kind of a confrontation. It wasn't. It didn't come to. It didn't evolve into a shootout, but he had to. Had to confront somebody in the mob there. Hmm. And so was your, you know, having a sheriff as a father, especially at that time. Uh, as a grandfather. No, I know, but for your father is what I'm going to get at. Well, that, that would be my mother's. Oh, that, this, was, that was your the, mother's I'm on the, father's. On the, my mother's side of the family. I got it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and did that make her kind of a tough disciplinarian? Oh, your mom? Not really, not really. <laughs> but uh, she grew up in the, uh, the. She and the family lived in the county jail, mm. and and her mom cooked for the prisoners, but uh, they were a uh, part of a law family. Oh, that's interesting. And so your dad, he was a salesman, right? Yes. What did he sell? He was uh, representing uh, heating equipment, and uh, back when propane was called butane. Yeah, I remember that. And uh, but that's he sold heating uh, uh, house heating stuff to people in that part of the country. Uh huh. And then, but you were when you were growing up, you had worked the farm. Yes. Do you ever go, and there must have been lots of Indian artifacts that were in the farm, too, that they would 
till up. Did you ever see any of those? No. No, I have never found a, uh-huh. an arrowhead. Yeah, my dad had lots of those from, you know, they worked the farms and they would just find them all the time in the fields. Well, when I was 14 years old, my father got tired of cold winters and we ended up in uh, Hollywood, Florida. That's where I went to high school. I went uh-huh. through high school and college in Florida. Interesting. And do you feel like you're a Floridian at all? No, not <laughs> not in the least. I was glad to Leave. say goodbye to uh, the Sunshine State. <laughs> and so when you're in growing up in high school, did you have a penchant for art or photography or anything like that at that time? Uh, no, music was uh, was a thing for me because I oh, had, well, while I was still in El- Illinois, I had spent a week across the river in St. Louis at a, at a family friend that had a grocery store and the, uh, the grocer was a serious amateur trumpet player. Yeah. And so I got, he'd turned me loose in the back room of the store. He said, here, see if you can figure out how, how to make this old cornet work. Right. Which it didn't happen, but he had all these LP uh, New Orleans jazz uh, uh, recordings, the Basin Street Six, with uh, Pete Fountain on clarinet, yeah. and, and when I was probably 12 years old, I got, really got interested in New Orleans music. That's interesting. And then when when I got to uh, got to high school, I joined the the band. I was in the trumpet section of the band, and what chair? What? What chair? <laughs> Do you uh, remember? Down the line, I finally made it up to second chair. Yeah. And then I quit the band. Yeah. Girls? What? Girls? <laughs> uh, no, just uh, my hatred of... Marching? Uh, marching. <laughs> yeah. I re- that was... <laughs> yeah, to, to, to walk or strut and with a with an instrument banging up on your chops. Yeah. That was cruel and unusual punishment. I, I don't disagree with you at all. <laughs> I've seen it, been there, and done it. Yeah. And so you um, so you really liked music a lot. That's right. Yeah, yeah. and I kind of stuck with it uh, off and on over the years. And in, in Prescott, I had musicians that I could play with yeah. we had we had a we had a, a Dixieland type band in Prescott at the uh, what was the name of that place the boiler room mm-hmm. just north of Whiskey Row and uh, that was a lot of fun and uh, so when uh, you when you got out of high school you went to college from there yes and 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 you said that was in Hollywood Florida as well no Gainesville Florida or Gainesville yeah University of Florida uh-huh. and I started out to try and be an uh, electrical engineer and I I was 
doing poorly, yeah. but I, I got lucky and I ended up in the architecture department. So I have a bachelor's degree in architecture. I uh, never became licensed, but I have committed architecture a few times. <laughs> and, and so when you're in college, did you pick up a camera yet? Had you picked up one? No. Still not. Okay. No, no. Uh, I'm just trying and, to find uh, this thread because, you know, you're one of our most famous Western photographers. So it's, it's, I'm, I'm trying to figure out when it comes in, but we'll, we'll, we'll get it. We're get, we're we'll getting get there. there. But, uh, uh, when I was in my final year of, of architecture, mm -hmm. uh, I got a, an academic scholarship uh, that amounted to a travel scholarship. And I, uh, I went all the way to the West Coast and all, all the way back and to uh, in the Dallas and, and uh, Scottsdale, which would have been Frank Lloyd Wright, yeah. and Southern California to visit outstanding examples of American architecture. Mm. But what I really got, uh, my takeaway from that trip was the or the Intermountain landscape mm. in uh, Colorado and uh we're working our way back, but it, it was the landscape that really, hmm. really stuck with me. And uh, I was, I think I was about 23 years old so that before was the... I ever came farther west than Anadarko, Oklahoma. <laughs> but the, it was the landscape that really made me want to come back to the west. And... But I was not photographing yet. And, but in my final semester at, uh, in Gainesville at mm -hmm. the University of, Air, of uh, Florida, I, t I took a course in painting. Mm. The f we had a pretty tight program, and there was only one opportunity for an elective, and I, I chose painting, but... Most of my contemporaries were studying beginning photography from the great Jerry Yulesman. And, uh, and so I, I could see what these, these colleagues of mine were doing in photography, and I, it got my interest. At, and so what I learned from there there is that black and white photography is was a very valid approach to image making but as a as a painter and a not very good painter mm -hmm. uh, I was one of my my painting instructor was part of the abstract expressionist movement and just by pure chance, 
somebody in the architecture library handed me a book. And I opened up that book and I saw it was uh, black and white photography by Aaron Siskind. And it just blew me away. And, and in my little bit of a brush with the abstract expressionist movement made me realize that here was a brilliant abstract photographer working in black and white. Mm -hmm. And it was at that moment that I decided that at some point I would take up photography and get get good at it. Mm -hmm. It took a while though. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, you were... So you were exposed at 23 when you came to West to see the West, right? Yes. And then that was the same semester that you took this painting class, or was the painting class before the trip to the West? The painting class came right after the came trip. Came right after. So you got exposed. Your brain started thinking about things and seeing the landscape in the West in a way you'd right. never experienced because you hadn't been past Anadarko, Oklahoma. And then all of a sudden... You're seeing Riskin's abstract photography, which you do too, by the way, and I've yes. seen it, and I like it a lot, those big things that interlock and things oh. like that. Yeah, I know your stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's what I've, I'm really interested in pursuing that. I, I started uh, uh, coming up with abstract imagery back as early as 68 and I have continued ever since and I would love to publish a, mo a modest size of book on the, of that subject because that's the subject is is the least known of my work yeah yeah I'm familiar with it though and I think it would be a great book Need to get Terry Etherton to do it. Tell him you want that and have him publish it. <laughs> well, so far it it would be a not very economical uh, <laughs> self-publishing self venture. Yeah. But I, I, I want to do it while I'm still around. Yeah, I get it. Well, when you're, so when you start um, seeing these photography and you say, okay, I'm going to take this up. Now you're t you're finishing college in what about 1961 or so in that time frame? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And so what do you and you've got a degree in architecture? Yes. So what do you do? What 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 you have to have some kind of job, I guess, to pay the bills. Yes, I uh, I ended up working for an architect in du on Tucson, hmm. in uh, uh, Ellery Green, who. I hope he's still around. He's an old timer, but he was a great guy to work for. Mm -hmm. In fact, I I did most of the design for the Twenty Second Street Baptist Church, mm -hmm. which is still standing and an active con congregation, and mm -hmm. they've taken good care of it. So, so that was one. And how'd you end up in Tucson? What was it that yanked you? Just well, that's where the job turned out to be, or? Uh, yeah, yeah. I uh, I lucked into a uh, a ranch job as I was ready to uh, 
be discharged from the army and i worked for <laughs> well you just threw that one in real quick we have yeah, a whole well, army thing that we missed out of well well yeah. when did you go into that was right after college yes so yeah, 61 see, I, I had in order to stay into in college and not get drafted i had to join uh army rotc right so that kept me that kept me from being drafted, but it also uh, the minute I got out of college, I went to uh, boot camp in Fort Benning, Georgia. Yeah, and ended up at the engineer school in Fort Belvoir, Virginia. Here, and at that point, I was a commissioned officer, a second lieutenant. Mm-hmm. My first duty duty station was Fort Hood, Texas. And here I, here I am, in the dead center of the cowboy and ranching west. And I had always, I mean, when I was a kid, I was reading Will James books and and looking at his drawings, mm-hmm. and, and uh, that's the kind of thing that really. Uh, I can't think of the right word, but it it turned your screws. Yeah, it did, and that was the kind of thing that made a farm kid interested in the cowboy west. Yeah, and so here I am at Fort Hood, Texas, with uh, a certain degree uh, degree of finances, and I I uh, ended up buying a horse. <laughs> and I, I, I met a, a guy who was running cattle on the Fort Hood military reservation. Right. And I ended up buying a horse from him. And I didn't even have the brains to ask if it was a broke horse. <laughs> and was it? <laughs> it was. Turned out to be uh, a four-year-old uh, good solid ranch horse and I got I got lucky and I could get saddle up that horse and ride on on Fort Hood country in amongst black and black Angus cattle mm-hmm. riding a buckskin horse and and that was really addictive. Yeah, and you were just doing it for fun. You you weren't cowboying or working for the rancher at all. You would just go no, ride no. your horse. But when I was uh, ready to uh, uh, separate from the Army, yeah. I had met a rancher from the Douglas area, the great Warner Glenn, and uh, he and his wife were willing to let me join their crew uh, in the fall of 1963 and they put up with me and and it gave me an opportunity to, to every day horseback in some country that looked straight into Mexico yeah I was having one hell of a, an adventure <laughs> but I was I was learning the basics of being a cowboy and that's what you were doing you're Fixing fences, right? Uh, yeah. Getting cattle, stray cattle, and all that stuff. 
That's right. Did you keep the same horse that you'd had in Fort Hood, or did you have to sell yeah, it? Yeah, that, that horse came with me. Yeah. And uh, I finally, he finally got poisoned on some bad hay in Tucson after I had left the ranch. Yeah. So I, I only had this good horse until age nine. Yeah. And from then on, I got, continued to, to own horses, and I've had, I've had good experiences with them. And so when you're working these this ranch down in Douglas, how long how long did you do that? Did you do that? For? I was there for the fall of 1963. Yeah. And Warner and his his father Marvin Glenn, they had a hunting business and they were renowned mountain lion hunters. I was going to say there's not a lot to hunt but mountain lion and deer up there. Yeah, deer both the uh, uh, mule deer and Sonoran whitetail, white uh, and the odd javelina. Yeah. But uh, the mountain lion, I mean, Warner has become renowned as the premier dry land mountain lion hunter. Hmm. And he's uh, he's eighty five and still going strong. <laughs> but it, anyway, I ended up for the fact that I worked on the ranch. I ended up on a hunt with them, and we were hunting in the Peloncillo Mountains, right on the New Mexico border, and our our. Clients were a man and wife from Sierra Vista, and the uh, we got on the trail of a of a lion, and this hunter. I won't go through how all the, all the chase up and down the ridges and and that, but this hunter got off an off a lucky shot, was. More, much more skill than luck, and and killed a four-year-old female mountain lion. And when we got back out of the mountains after dark, uh, we were told that President Kennedy had been assassinated on that very day, mm. November twenty-second, nineteen sixty-three, and we were probably among the last. People in the civilized world that he that knew about that. Yeah, and uh, that's quite a shock, wasn't it? What? Oh, what? What a what a horrible occurrence on that sad day. But uh, I ended up with the skull of this mountain lion that was killed on that day, and I, I've. Uh, I've got that skull, and it's got the the date written inside the skull on the palate bone, and that's my that's my memento from that from that particular day. Yeah, your way, your ritual of way of probably mourning to some extent, mourning in a way that thing. You know. Oh yeah, that was that was a terrible 
yeah. occurrence. Anyway, that's my memento <laughs> from that occasion. So once you finished up with the ranch handing, in and that was in Douglas, then you do end up in Tucson right after that, working yes, in the architecture? Yeah, yeah. I went to work in, as an as a architectural draftsman in Tucson. Had you bought a camera yet? No. And, <laughs> and then my second year in to Tucson, I ended up working uh, for the uh, U.S. Geological Survey on the U of A campus in the geology building. And I was a cartographic draftsman at that time, but I had access to the U of A library and mm -hmm. I, I knew that photography was something I had to try and learn. And I checked out all of the Ansel Adams books, uh, wonderful books that was he his they they were called the basic photo series and i absorbed those books and began to understand how i needed to proceed as a serious photographer and i learned right away that i needed a four by five uh inch view camera and work and to work from a tripod, I took a course in uh, scientific illustration at, at the U of A because they offered some darkroom work, and I learned had got exposed to the darkroom. And then over the years, I uh, in various places in Arizona, I pioneered makeshift darkrooms to uh, um, develop film and try to print. Mm -hmm. So uh, in a way, given the, the book, learning, le book learning from the Adams books and working on my own, I'm semi-self-taught. Yeah. Did you ever get to meet Ansel Adams? Yes, I did. Yeah, tell me about that. I got talked into taking the 1966 Yosemite uh, photo workshop. And uh, so I, I met Ansel. There were 64 of us participants. Uh, but Ansel, what an approachable approachable gentleman mm. a really good man and uh he had made it uh it known to us participants that if we wanted to look him up at a later date <laughs> make a uh, uh a date to come to his home and look at and show work so about 10 years later, I showed up with a portfolio of photographs and sat down with, with Ansel over a highball, and, and he looked at my work and, and gave, me, gave me some encouragement. Yeah, what did he say? What was his encouragement? Do you remember? 
yeah, the encouragement was you print too much like Fred Summer. He says, I, and Fred Summer is, was a big deal to, in my life. Yeah. Frederick Summer. But he says, you print too much like Fred Summer. And, and that kind of gave me the permission to try and print with a little more contrast that would be closer between Fred and Ansel. Right. And that, that was an important to, thing for me. But uh, in, oh, 68, I guess, I, I was working in Flagstaff. I worked for the for Northland Press. Mm -hmm. I had promoted a job with them, and uh, that's when I worked on the Maynard Dixon sketchbook that yeah, we with, published. Yeah, with Percival. With Don Percival. And did you work with him directly, Don? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, what a nice man. Yeah. God, he, he was a great guy. But anyway, while I was in Flagstaff, I found out that. Uh, a gentleman named Frederick Summer was going to show his work at the Museum of Northern Arizona. And I had been, uh, I had researched him enough to realize that he had some real important standing in the, in the art world. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I found out he was going to come by, Northland Press the next day, so I made sure I had some prints to show him. <laughs> and he uh, he said, "Well, this work is of interest to me, but if if you come down to Prescott, I will show you some stuff that would improve your the quality of your work." So a month later, I drove to Prescott, walked in the door. And Frederick Summer said to me, how would you like to teach photography at Prescott College? <laughs> and I thought, this is unprecedented. I, I couldn't believe I was hearing this. I said, well, I'd, I'd, I'd be interested. <laughs> and he says, well, if you're interested, I'll go to work on it. And in fairly short order, he got me onto the faculty to teach photography at Prescott College. He was taking a chance on me. Yeah. But I think down deep inside, he, he wanted to get somebody to work in the darkroom so that he, he didn't have to work in the darkroom. <laughs> and he was, he was on a much higher academic and philosophical uh, plane and dealing with art and aesthetics and that, but he was, uh, he got, made sure that I was there in the dark room. And you're like 29 or 30 about this time? Yeah, this, yeah. yeah, about that time. Yeah, so, so that's where your influence came from the dark room of his work because he's oh yeah he's working with you as well. Yeah, well he I had access to Frederick Summer for quite a few years in the Prescott area, 
and uh, I, I would work with him in his dark room mm-hmm. on some of his work or on some of my work, and he was showing me everything, and he gave me a wonder, wonderful education about quality lenses. Mm. In fact, he he uh, he at one point. He was in Florida for some kind of a uh, speaking gig, and he bought a used eight by ten inch camera for him, for me, and had it shipped to me. And then he gave me a loan of his nineteen inch epichromatic Artar lens. And I I used that lens on on my new eight by ten camera for five years, and I did some of my best early work with a lens that he finally had to repo it. <laughs> <laughs> he said, "I need it." Yeah, and but he he helped me come up with other lenses that were quality and served me well over the years. So, and you were in there for, in Prescott, working for him from like 68 to 72 kind of thing? Uh, yeah, he, yeah, I was working not terribly close with him, but mm-hmm. but I, because I, I had taken over the college, the, the photography uh venture with the students there and yeah. they, and I had some good students we had a great time and uh, did any of them go on to become professional photographers do you know oh uh, trying to think uh, yes as a matter of fact and and this woman was not a a student of mine but she has she is is the famous Nevada Weir. She's been a, uh, all over the world mm. as a color photographer, and but and she and I are are friends. But she was not a student, but she took up photography or made her own way with it, and she's become. Very, very famous. Mm. She's very, very good. Yeah. And so when you're doing this work and you're working as a teacher, did you were you starting to sell your photos at that time too? Did you have a gallery that you worked with? Uh, yeah. I, I was doing landscape imagery in uh, the Etherton Gallery, which mm. is in Tucson. Right. They have, they've represented me for more years than I can count. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is. If he started doing it in the seventies, yeah, that's he was just getting going here himself then. Yeah, I don't remember when he started, but uh, I think they just had a thirtieth anniversary. I think it's even more, maybe. Yeah, more. Than I just that. had thirtieth. I think he had more like fortieth. Yeah, that's pro- probably it. But, yeah. But I was working with a. a Eight by 10 inch for view camera, yeah, always on a tripod. And I, uh, in 1970, 
I had the opportunity to meet a couple of really good cowboys in the Prescott area, and I made portraits of these two gentlemen in 1970, and then I, I didn't do any more of them until I got the, uh, I started in on uh, trying, the good, the trying, to, trying to come up with uh, some support vis-a-vis -vis the uh, Guggenheim Foundation. Yeah. And that, and I, I bought, I failed three times with that, with the applications because I was trying to sell them on the, the landscape of the American West. Right. And that was no, that was no great uh, idea for them. But on the fourth try, I had uh, called. Uh, the photographer Emmett Gowan. Emmett had gotten a Guggenheim on his first try, and maybe as early as 1974. But I knew Emmett, and I called him up, and I said, oh, "I'm going to try it again. What's your good advice?" He says, "Well, he says, come up with an idea that if you got the award." that you would be happy pursuing. And the minute I got off the phone, I I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to photograph cowboys. Because I... Had been I, one. <laughs> I'd, I'd been one and been around them. And, yeah. and th throughout my life in Arizona, I've always gravitated to the ranching and cowboy uh, people and... Uh, friends all over the state and I I did I did a lot of neighborly cowboying yeah. with my friends but anyway I so when when Emmett gave me his advice I hung up the phone and I started in on trying to come up with a, with a plan to to sell to the Guggenheim people and part of the application said, you've got to show us some of your work. And you had some from 1970. So, what? <laughs> and you had one from 1970, yeah, the two I boys, had, right? I had two of them from 1970. But, but knowing that I needed to show them what I could do, I started going to the, uh, uh, the ORO Ranch yeah. northwest of Prescott, which was a, one, still one of the great big outfit ranches that runs a check wagon and has a cowboy crew and a big remuda of horses. And I started photographing those guys. And I ended up with a set of 16 nice prints, mounted prints. I sent them off to the Guggenheim and they bought it. They went for it because it was, it was a pretty fresh idea that I yeah, wanted. especially then that was like eighty one, right? Yeah, that would have been. Uh, it was in nineteen eighty that I had made the application. Yeah, 
and I, and my plan was I want to wanted to uh, do a series of, of large format black and white view camera portraits of the working cowboys, and this was not going to be the cowboys at work. This was going to be uh, serious uh, uh, setups of of semi-formal portraits. Right. And this is where my my architectural background came into play because uh, I was working from a tripod. I'm working slowly and I could organize a uh, a place where I wanted my, my subjects in there. Mm-hmm. And so I'm designing a photograph. Yeah. Step by step and then inviting the people in. Sometimes they're a, they're a foot, sometimes they're a horseback, but I was organizing f- photographs on a large format from a tripod. You were doing composition like a landscape, really. Yeah, right. In fact, I, I use the word composition, and I have uh, I've taught a lot of photography workshops, and I would kind of ease my students into considering the composition of a, of a photograph as a matter of design. Mm-hmm. And I, I'd say, think of, think of your, what you're doing is you're, you're designing the photograph. So that's a matter of semantics, but it was a big deal for me. Yeah. And did the people that set for you, how did they take to it? Or should I say, how did they cotton to it? <laughs> they, they, felt, they felt honored that I had come a long ways to intrude into their lives and participate with them. Yeah, yeah. I, I was I was usually horseback with these crews for even a, a several days before I even said, "Let's make some photographs." So that's how how I uh, I met these people and and. Uh, and it gave me some credibility, and so I might, I might have gone to a branding and dug calves to the fire to get the brands put on them, and that was what I knew how to do. And and I I came into that that uh, activity with a certain amount of certain amount of credibility. Yeah, absolutely. Like you proved yourself. Yes, that's right. Yeah. But these people, they were honored that I not only would come a long ways and seek them out, but they thought, well, with this big camera and and the way he goes about this, it's a big deal. And that's and there was a certain amount of being honored by the process. Yeah. So it 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 was good. Did any good. of those people that you didn't know before you did the photography become friends afterwards? Uh, oh yeah, yeah. I would I could see that happening. 
you know, because it's an intimate thing to take a, photo, a photo of somebody That's and then right. and then you show them the photo and they can see what you've been able to pull out of them and I'm sure sometimes they were I I would think sometimes they might have even been a little bit shocked of that that was them and they looked like they they were, you know. Well, I don't think there was any any shock value to that, but You don't think you don't think sometimes they would see something that they didn't even know they had in themselves. That's hard to say. Yeah. That would be up to up to the individual. Yeah. But uh, a, a portrait in photography is a form of communication. Absolutely. And and I I, I got some feedback from a, a sculptor in Iowa just recently in relation to the images in this book and he said that these people in in the book they are looking at the at the person that's got the book in their hand so it's it's a direct line of communication yeah and uh, and so he so this guy said he said uh I can't even remember, but anyway, he remarked that that uh, that there was a direct act of communication between the viewer of the book and the person that's being photographed. And I had a I had a exhibit in. Uh, in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, a few years ago, and the the gallerist called what called that work direct gaze, mm. G A Z E, mm-hmm. and so really it I, I would I would never I wanted the people looking ultimately at the at the reader of the book, but so that means they need to look at, into my camera, right? And I would never say look at the camera. I would always say look at the lens, uh, the eye. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So, so that that has a little bit to do with the way I approached approach this. Well, when you say look at the lens, it focuses their eye in a more specific way, right? I mean, exactly. it really does. Exactly, because the camera is a big camera; it can look anywhere. But when you say yeah. "look at the lens," yeah. yeah, that does that. And this is the book we're talking about that came from that, which is the North American Cowboy Portrait. And we're fortunate enough to actually get ten of these to sell, and the, they'll come out about the same time as the podcast. Again, for anybody who's actually looking at this on the uh, on YouTube, you can see the photography. And this one particularly, I just love this. Tell me a little bit about this this lady. Uh, she just turned seventy. <laughs> what was she I there? I knew her <laughs> when she was nineteen years old. Yeah, and her parents brought her to Prescott College, and he, she was a student at Prescott College. And I, I don't. She was never a photography student of mine. She was an advisee of mine. As a, as a member of sa- faculty, I had advisees, but 
we're, we've been friends ever since I met her. Julie Hagen, right? Yeah, and she, she, uh, I don't know if she even graduated from Prescott College, but she went back to Wyoming and got a job uh, on, a, on a ranch. And, and for years, she was in charge of about 400 mother cows on a, on a forest service allotment mm-hmm. in the, in the Grovant mountain, mountains of Wyoming, Western Wyoming. And so when I, when I was on the trail of uh, the cowboys in, from Prescott to uh, British Columbia and Alberta and back down to my Montana and Wyoming, I looked her up and did that portrait. And where was she it, at that time? She was on her, working on on a ranch called the Little Jenny Ranch near Bondurant, Wyoming, and uh, she had just turned thirty. Yeah. When that photograph was made, <laughs> so, forty so, years ago. Yeah, forty years ago. You think we'll still have that culture and? 30, 40 years, the cowboy culture? It's it's hard to say. It's hard to say because um, a lot of ranch ownership goes into the corporate world as write-offs or to celebrity ownership. And uh, maybe the celebrities would be more inclined to... to operate the ranch in a more traditional way right it's it's up for grabs yeah um the the west has been exploited just enormously and uh the range has been steadily shrinking but I, it's it's still it's still out there. Yeah, there's still a few outfits or that run the wagon and got a, quite a crew. It's it's hard to hard to know. Yeah, I what, think it is. What comes next or what the future holds? Hope it isn't. Well, you know, we'll I grew see. up in the cowboy culture where I grew up in eastern New Mexico. So, oh, really? Yeah, it was, these were the people I knew and still do know. It's still alive there. It's a little different, more, you know, milk cows now than herding cattle. But, well, New Mexico is a, is a wonderful part of the West. I, uh, I think it, it is in some ways is a little superior to Arizona. Arizona has is overpopulated more so than New Mexico is. Yeah. But but I, I I really I really love New Mexico. And you're la- you're you're in Douglas, right? Yes, I live about five miles north of Douglas, yeah. which is right on the Sonora border. Yeah. And not far from New Mexico either. No, not that far. <laughs> not that far. Yeah, you can't tell the difference really between Douglas and Columbus, New Mexico, really. Not much. Yeah, it's not all the much. Same. Uh, the uh, there is still a 
a massive border wall that still exists. I'd lo I'd love to see it come down, but but it was working its way uh, illegally eastward from Arizona into New Mexico, and and then we had a change of administration, right. which was was not the smoothest <laughs> ever. But uh, anyway, uh, New Mexico is still more open to wildlife yeah. migration from the south or from the north, and uh, the there is a there are jaguars that, right. that can make a living in in the new in in old New Mexico, and occasionally they will come north into into New Mexico. Yep, and Arizona. They've been up and, by and, Tucson. In Arizona, yeah, I've been uh, been a observer of that phenomenon over over the years. In fact, um, in 1996, Warner Glen was uh, on a mountain lion hunt in in southern Arizona, and what he ended up trailing. It was quite a quite a ride, uh, but he ended up seeing and photographing a wild jaguar. This was somewhere close to Arizona and New Mexico, where they came together. And those he made the first photographs of uh, of a wild jaguar. I mean, there were photographs of. Jaguars that had come north, but they were dead ones. Mm -hmm. He got the first live ones, pictures live of the of the jaguar, and I was I helped him put together his book called Eyes of Fire and Encounter with the Borderlands Jaguar. Mm. It's a wonderful book, and uh, but. He was thrilled by seeing this jaguar, and it actually, he was in a way too close to this wild animal with his hunting dogs, and they were just about to come to grips. But he get, managed to keep himself and most of his dogs safe, safe, and he watched that. Watch that jaguar head south back in New Mexico. Yeah, <laughs> and it, it was quite a thrill to for him. He wasn't about to to Hurt slay that. it. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a, yeah, it's a wonderful yeah. thing. And he and his his father, many years before, had gone way down into Nayarit, Mexico, into the jungles, hoping to. In kind of a jaguar, and they never never got to see one. They had to do it on their, in their own it, land. It, yeah, <laughs> and it it came up uh, into the uh, to the old Geronimo country yeah. and uh, quite a ways north of the jungles. Yes, they are in this area for sure. 
they're in this area for sure. Now, you have written a couple of books, worked on a couple of books on landscape, right? And yes. you also worked with uh, an, a writer that ended up getting a, a um, nomination for a Pulitzer, right? Well, yeah, that was a guy named Dan Daggett. Daggett and yeah. we, he was uh, writing about progressive ranchers, and that would have been probably uh, 10 or 20 years ago. Yeah. And I, I did photographs of, of the of the management teams on these various ranches uh, in, from Nevada to uh, Arizona to New Mexico and uh, in Sonora, Sonora, Mexico. And those, uh, so I was involved in that, in that uh, project. Then I, in, I was involved in a much lengthier project with a, a, a journalist named Alan Wiseman. Mm -hmm. And we did a, a book called La, La Frontera, the United States border with Mexico. And we spent most of uh, 1985 working both sides of the border from all the way from the Pacific Ocean to uh, the Gulf of Mexico. Mm. And what I, uh, when I signed on to that project, I th was thinking, boy, there's a lot of open countries, a lot of landscape opportunities right. for me. But I ended up doing mostly portraits <laughs> because it was the stories came from the people who dwelt along the border yeah. on both sides. So what... Uh, what did that teach you that when, by doing that? Because you met a lot of people and it probably took a lot of time. I'm sure you must have come away with some thoughts that you hadn't had before. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that that the, the border was quite peace, peaceable then, but... There, there was a border patrol presence, and there was was uh, uh, illegal traf traffic mainly northward, um, and it, but it was a lot more peaceful then than now. This was in 1985, mm -hmm. but uh, yeah, the. The Papago Reservation was it was a kind of a, a dual citizenship right. situation because part of that part of the uh, country of the of the Indians was on both sides of the yeah uh, on po both sides of the border in this still is <laughs> yeah this border just were come through there and but, but culturally it uh, it created some disturbance disturbance but uh, but the, the culture was on to, on both sides of what became an international boundary right yeah that's where border walls don't come in so easily when you have yeah. a culture that's been there for a thousand years, the Tohoto Odom, and yeah. go back and forth as a 
They don't see a border there. No, so. no. It was it was a more of an inconvenience than a reality. Yeah. And so would you like to go, I mean, you don't really do a lot of photography now, right? No, I'm not doing any photography yeah, now. But if you could, or if you had the ability or the or the interest, I'm sure you have the interest, but would you go back and revisit that subject matter? It could be, there would be some very interesting sh shots that wouldn't have been there no, before. No, I wouldn't go back to the border. No. Because uh, I've had plenty of opportunities to to try and learn a second language yeah. that I am incapable of. Yeah. And though, though I've lived for 22 or so years, right next to my neighbors to the south, I could go into Walmart and, and I am mystified by my lack of understanding of what is being sold, said by the people there. Yeah. I, well, in another 30 years, that won't be the case for all of us, I don't think. That, yeah. <laughs> we'll all, You're we'll, right. But we'll all be No, things, things are changing. The demographics in, in the southern United States is in, in flux. It's yeah. changing. Yeah. And it's going to, it's probably irritating certain class of people, but it is changing and there's no there's no there's no uh, getting around that right but if i were to fo continue to photograph i think it would be uh, going back to the landscape but even more so searching for abstraction abstractions yeah, yeah i i i'm anxious to get that to get that work on on the pub, public record, it yeah, may not it it may not happen, but I'm I'm not. Uh, I guess I'm on borrowed time right now, but I'm I'm pretty happy <laughs> we about all are. about. Yeah. Did you know Louise Serpa at all? Did you know Louise Serpa very well? Oh yeah, not real well. Yeah. Not real well, but. What a wonderful, what a wonderful photographer yes. Louisa Serpa was, and yeah. she, I, uh, I was in a rodeo arena photographing with her one time. Yeah, that was at, at Williams at the uh, cowboy reunion, uh, uh, working cowboy rodeo there, yeah. and. Uh, and I actually got some good color uh, photographs on that on that particular day, but I mean to to feel that uh, I was allowed in a rodeo arena with the great Louise Serpa. I know, and right? <laughs> Louise and I were the only two people in that uh, arena at the time, but uh, I. I uh, had a, a some big portraits. They were four foot by five foot portraits that were made from my eight by ten uh, uh, negatives, 
and they were exhibited at the uh, Etherton Gallery. Mm -hmm. And Louise Serpa attended that show, and I was so honored by that. Yeah, she was an amazing person. Yeah, I Her, wish I had known her better. Yeah, she was really interesting. Yeah, she. <laughs> so, so, so you you knew her? Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah well, I know that uh, that her book, which I don't know, I don't even know what it's called, but it was a book of her photo, yeah, pho rodeo photographs. Right. And I know that Larry, the great Larry McMurtry, yeah. had written a foreword for that, but I think he got it wrong because he uh, he just was not a fan of the rodeo. I mean, he come from came from ranch country and the cow country, and I've read most of his books, mm -hmm. and he's just a fabulous guy who I never got to meet. But his his take on Louise's work and work, I think he missed the mark on mm -hmm. that. Yeah, he was an interesting guy. <clears throat> he lived in Tucson as well. You're right, and I I know that uh, that. Uh, Terry Etherton had known McMurtry, and I never took an advantage took an advantage of that possible connection. Yeah, I think you would have enjoyed it for sure. Yeah, I only I got to meet him one time. I had dinner with him one night. Oh, really? Which yeah, it was very interesting to just hear his stories of, you know, uh, last picture show and all that you know mm -hmm. things that went on. And yeah, I wish that I had been able to meet the gentleman. Yeah, and I, and I probably. Missed him by just a couple of years. Yeah, I'm sure he would have liked to meet you too. Well, <laughs> it's hard to, hard to say, but uh, oh, I think he would have. I uh, I can't imagine he wouldn't have. I mean, when you see an image, some of those images, you know, it'd throw him right back into Lonesome Dove. I think. Yeah, well, Lonesome Dove, what a wonderful uh, phenomenon that was. Yeah. As as. Uh, Americana, and I I got to know Bill Whitliff, but and I we never met face to face, but he collected some of my photographs years ago for his the Whitliff collection in San Marcos, Texas, mm -hmm. and their landscapes, and I several times I talked to. To Whitliff on the phone. What a what a nice guy. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I've got a copy of his uh, photographs, the book of photographs from from Lonesome Dove, and it's inscribed by Whitliff and and that. But we never met. Yeah. But, but he he we knew each other, and and I enjoyed some wonderful phone conversations with him. He was, uh, he knew that I was looking for a, a place for my archive. And he said, well, he said, well, we might want it at San Marcos, but I'll, I'll kind of help you locate it. But I had managed to uh, got the Booth Museum in Georgia. Yeah, and that's and I I don't know if I pulled off the the big 
con on them, <laughs> but they they ended up accepting my I think probably archive, archive yeah. and and they gave me a, a beautiful show in two, in two thousand and eighteen. Yeah. retrospective in in Georgia. I think they pulled it off on you because they got one of the great archives. <laughs> I, that's it's hard to, hard to say, <laughs> but uh, yeah, they've they've got quite a few of my big prints or in small prints. Yeah. Um, do they have the boxcar one? I want to talk about that one yeah, specifically, yeah. just because I do like that yeah. image so much, and I know you've printed that really large before, and it's—I think right. it's really impressive in a large format. Yes, yeah, uh, I think they have a big print of it in in Georgia. Um, that photograph was made in, I think, two <clears throat> thousand ten, mm -hmm. and. The railroad used to run from Douglas to uh, El Paso, and it all it went all pretty much along Highway 80, and uh, and the, I think they abandoned that route in about 1963. Mm -hmm. But a uh, a railroad car came off the track right there mm -hmm. in Rodeo, New Mexico. And it is right just uh, not even 100 yards into, into New Mexico across the fence from Arizona. And I think people lived in that, in that railroad car for several years. But I guess it was in 2010 that I knew, but I was told where to find it, and I even went to the guy that had told me about it, and he took me there. And I went with the 8x10 camera in my widest angle lens, yeah. and I set up the <clears throat> the camera inside of the inside of the skeleton of mm -hmm. that railroad car. And uh, with a wide-angle lens, you get a real sensation of, of uh, from real, real, right there by your toenails, right, quite distant, and it's it's a extreme perspective, but it's it's a wide view. So I had the I knew. How that I wanted to go and photograph that from the inside, and it took several hours. For, I got all set up, and it was windy outside, and there were no clouds in the sky, and I just waited forever <laughs> and forever. And finally, some little clouds came by, and the wind was manageable because I'm on a on a tripod, but the Clouds were enough to cut down on the contrast, and there were there's uh, the uh, shadows of the skeletal part of the roof of that car are cast onto the floor, and the clouds kind of cut down on the contrast of that, and that uh, that's 
that r photograph really made itself. Yeah. But I just had to be very patient. patient. Did you know you had it when you shot it? Yeah. I made several exposures. No, I didn't know for sure I had it, but I uh, went home to the dark room and developed the film. And 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 one of those negatives, yeah, proved that I had it. And this was this was a question of of uh, of pre predetermining. The vision that I I wanted I my predetermined vision of that, which I achieved optically, and and then it was a matter of of having some patience and having some good good luck on the same day. Mm -hmm. It took I was in that railroad car for quite a few hours waiting waiting for the conditions <laughs> to be right. And that, though, we, the image of that is the biggest image of mine that have ever been printed. And uh, the Phoenix Art Museum has a big print of that in their uh, permanent collection. Yeah, I remember when you showed it at that show in Phoenix. I think they bought it at that show. That, yeah, I remember that was the first time I saw it. I was blown away when I saw yeah, it. Yeah, because that that it's about it's about five feet high and six and a half feet yeah. wide. Yeah, it's it's a. <laughs> I, I'm glad I was able to pull that <laughs> off, and I have had the extreme pleasure of working with a a uh, digital imaging maestro in uh, Cave Creek. Mm -hmm. And he has made big prints from my big negatives and some uh, smaller negatives. The guy is the best, got to be the best printer in the universe. And I've had, had his friendship and access to him for many, many years. What's his name? You want to give him a shout out? Yes. Carlos Mandelavietia. <laughs> he has got a seven syllable surname <laughs> and and that would be the second line of a, of a haiku. <laughs> so, you know how, you know how, how a, high, a haiku is constructed? Mm -hmm. Five line, I mean five syllables on the first line, seven syllables on the second line, and then five syllables on the third line. And the way you remember that is from a haiku, and it goes like this. Last summer I had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven zits on my face. <laughs> That's an adolescent haiku. <laughs> That's right. But one of my one of my Prescott College students, she he laid that on me many years ago, and yeah. I've never forgotten it. <laughs> those are those are good ways. In medicine, we use those all the time to try to remember long and difficult uh, 
uh, things, diseases and stuff. It's a lot easier to do it that way. <laughs> <laughs> so you've now, you, you haven't do, done photography for a while, right? No. And um, I think two, 2015 it was probably the last serious photograph that yeah. I made. But you must see things sometimes with your photographer eye that you go, oh my, I'd like to get a photo of that. Well, I, I I don't think that I do. No, really? Well, I probably do, but I, uh, it just, it does, doesn't come over, it doesn't overwhelm me at the time. Yeah, well, then maybe that was the right well, time to, to stop yeah, the I think it was. I think it was time for for that to wind down. I I was out on the west side of the Dragoons oh, about a year ago with a dear friend from Arkansas, who was one of the greatest digital photographers um, in the in on the planet, and I was kind of playing around with the digital camera and I got nothing but he got he got some some good shots but he was using the all of the digital capture techniques that he could bring together yeah and and ending up with the black and white landscape images yeah and he is probably the best uh color for Photography in the business. He's made a career. He got a Guggenheim uh, from his name is Michael Schultz. He lives in Arkansas. He got a Guggenheim before doing color uh, photography of extreme uh, industrial settings in big foundries and rolly, mm -hmm. rolling mills and, and very demanding uh, photographic setups with bright light from a, from a, a cauldron of molten metal mm -hmm. being poured into something. And he, he uh, I can't say enough good... Uh, good things about Mike Schultz, but uh, he is finding he is an old uh, large format black and white photographer that we we've got together in 1980 in Prescott. Mm. Been good friends ever since, but he has taken uh, the. Uh, massive capabilities of digital photography and bring it, it all together and then he's converting it to black and white. Yeah, he's embracing the technology. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but he has top of the line yeah instrumentation and and the knowledge and the knowledge to go with it. Yeah. That's what it and takes. I'm I'm not in the least Inclined to want to get involved in the uh, the digital equipment arms race. <laughs> it's just too much for me to 
deal with. Yeah. Well, what would you tell a young artist that really wants to be a photographer? I mean, there's everybody's a photographer now, right? But somebody who really says, okay, I'm going to do this as a profession. I'm. Uh, I would en en encourage them to study architecture. <laughs> really? <laughs> I get it. Seriously. Because uh, uh, to work... I'm going to well take, a, take in, a photo of you while I've got you here, actually. See. So to work well in art, yes. one has to understand the way the elements of what one looks at, the, how they want to work together. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, I have always considered a the making of, of a photograph as a design opportunity. And for the most part, I have worked very slowly. And uh, one of the great photographers who is a friend and who I very much admire is uh, William Albert Allard. And he photographed with color film with a, with Leica cameras mostly in Paris and, and he's been all over the world photographing for National Ge Geographic and and his work is instantaneous grabs of things that were coming together for him he was like the great Cartier-Bresson, the black and white photographer, but uh, Bill Ellard worked in color, mm -hmm. and uh, just fabulous work. I've got a got a couple of Geo National Geographic friends, and and he was he was very very happy that he was a staff photographer for National Geographic, and that enabled him to really get around the world and but also to be to be turned loose to work on his own do you have a personal favorite photo that you've taken or photos you yes well that's that's one yeah. uh the one of the uh this one that right one and uh julie hagan well the the coach car, uh, I have got a photograph that I show as one of my abstractions, and that was uh, a photograph looking into a uh, an abandoned marble quarry in mm -hmm. the Chiricahua Mountains, and... Uh, that was in 2013, and and that is looking down into this gouged out quarry hole in in the mountain, and uh, it it's a vertical photograph made with a four by five inch view camera from a tripod. And I was so, so afraid I was going to fall into that pit because <laughs> yeah. the uh, setup was pretty pretty dicey. Yeah. 
but uh, I have no way of showing you that photograph. We can find it, I'm sure. But that's, sometimes you have to do that, right? You have to put yourself out there a little bit to, yeah, to be I, able to get that photo. Yeah, it was, uh, I was on this slope looking, overlooking that probably foot, foot, 40 foot fall into a, into a, into a hole oh, in the granite rock. Yeah. yeah. But uh, I was so nervous about getting that shot with all all the booze. I have, with a view camera, I've got adjustments and I can drop the lens or raise the lens or I can fiddle with the perspective. And I was so nervous about getting that shot and getting out of there that I didn't re even notice how beautiful the light was. Mm. And if I had it here to show show it to you, you would see what I was in my nervousness that I I didn't really I missed it until I looked at the photographs since it, it, it's a photo it's not my very favorite but is a really high on my list. personal list yeah Louis Serba told me always follow the light Jeez. well yeah but I wasn't following the light <laughs> I was following my fear <laughs> yeah you got the light I, you innately I'll, I'll, knew. I'll send you a jpeg of it. yeah do and we'll put it on the video part of this so people can see which one oh, we're talking okay. about so anything, last words you want to say to people who are listening about you or your work? Uh, well, I have always considered photography to be an art. It is, I agree. It is, it is. And it, and it needs to be in my estimation, approached that way. I think there is, photography is so universal now and everybody's got a, a cell phone and, and there's the amount of photography that gets uh, captured now. I don't, I don't know where it all goes. And, and, <laughs> or what, what are Instagram. the motives for it? It goes... Yeah. You know, that's a good question. I mean, yeah. what are the motives? I think there's a lot of different motives. I think some for some of it, it's just self-gratification of, you know, the, the self-ego. I think some of it is remembrance of a moment. That's right. And then for others, I think it is seeing the world through an unfiltered way that they can't see through their own eyes. Well, maybe so. But it seems like it is so easy and it it just gets so overdone. I, I I just I I don't have a very good grasp of the magnitude of of what happens photographically. Yeah, in, probably hundreds yeah. of millions of photographs are yeah. put on the internet every day. Yeah. Hundreds of millions. Yeah. <laughs> so, but even at with all those, some are better than others. Well, sure. <laughs> you know, an artist is an artist. It goes back to your form, you know, and what you're saying that photography is an art form. I mean, true artists can step above, I think, you know, yeah. uh, just taking a pretty photo. Well, I, I, I have been uh, 
influenced by kind of the art history going back to uh, back to the the uh, Greek sculpt sculpture area, and so I'm influenced by uh, ancient sculpture and contemporary sculpture and and all the whole array of painting. I have never taken a, an art history course, but I have been so interested in it. I think I've uh, covered a fair amount of ground. I, I've got a bit of a command of, of the history of art going back to to uh, architecture. I'm I sure know. you do. Well, and you also taught photography in a college for many years. Yeah, I taught the history of photography at times, and I've even uh, been involved in the teaching of a little bit of architectural history on a, a team basis. Uh, one of my most compelling images that I saw in a uh, when I was an architecture student, I, I was shown a color slide of the uh, Nike or Nike of Samothrace, the heroic figure of the headless woman with the wings that was a uh, Greek, an early Greek sculpture that was commemorating the victory in a naval battle. Mm -hmm. And this is, this was called the Winged Victory of Samothrace. Mm -hmm. And I've even got a, a an abstraction that's called Winged Victory. But that, having seen that, as a uh, architectural student back in back in the in the late fifties, yeah, that resonated with me, and it's I've never forgotten it. Art can do that. Yeah, a single piece can make a difference. Yeah, can change everything. Yeah, and I think you probably had a few of those in your life, but on the winged on <laughs> that one, we'll, winged victory. Yeah, we'll, we can end it up there, Jay. Thank you so much for taking your time. And uh, for those people who are listening, we have 10 of his books. I don't think they're going to last very long. But (laughs) (laughs) you you can see they're signed and they're limited editions, and we're thrilled to have those. And it has the original photo inside. Um, So, well, there's actually only nine because I'm going to buy one. So now you got nine left. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Mark, it's a pleasure to spend this time with you. Yeah, And uh, I'm... In the in the presence of the of a great hmm. Maynard Dixon collection, and uh, I was privileged years ago to work on the publication of the Maynard Dixon drawing sketchbook. Yeah. And Maynard Dixon has been a real uh, heroic influence on me. Yeah. And he was good friends with Ansel Adams, too. Yeah. So. Yeah. In fact, uh, the the portrait of 
meter Dixon in that sketchbook yes. was was done by Ansel Adams. Yep. And when I was working on that book, I called Ansel and and got him to come up with his favorite um, portrait of uh, Dixon. And that's how come that was my contribution to getting that image in the book. And it that, and that was Ansel's favorite image that he took of him. Uh, it ha- it had to have been because I've seen other yeah other uh, Maynard Dixon portraits by Ansel, and that's clearly the best one. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, well, we I learned would, something. I would have been happy to tell him that should <laughs> should have been your favorite. <laughs> and 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 Mark, in relation to this book, yes, this book, the printing in this. Uh, I think 1983 book. That's what it was printed. Yeah. Printed is um, Ansel Adams had pioneered black and white reproduction in a book with the with uh, David Gardner of Gardner Fulmer Lithograph in in uh, Southern California. And they, they're the people that did the printing on this book. Mm. And I know I i was over there. I walked in to Gardner Fulmer, and uh, and and Dave Gardner said, here, here, Ansel's on the phone. He wants to talk to you. Uh-huh. And that, that was a cool deal, uh-huh. but it was a... The quality of the reproductions in this book. Yeah, your book. Go mm-hmm. back, go back to the pioneering work that Dave Gardner did with Ansel Adams for his for his books. Wow! So that's that's a yeah that's a benefit <laughs> of this of this whole sales well, talk. I, yeah. <laughs> well, it won't. I don't think we last time we had books they didn't last very long. I don't think we have to sell, sell them too hard. Well, Jay, thank you so much for taking the time to come up. I know it's a hassle sometimes to come up from Tucson, but we appreciate it. I've always wanted to have you on the podcast. I think you're very important to not only you know, photography, but just to the whole sensibility of what the West is. You lived it. You captured it. You still live it. And, uh, you know, there's not a lot of us out there like that. Well, Mark, thank you for the opportunity. You're, you're one of the great gallerists, <laughs> and I admire you very well, much thank and you. i appreciate it means a lot coming from you it really does thank you very much all right we'll go look okay. at maynard dixon stuff okay and get these books done <laughs>